What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the cry of the man or the woman who has seen the hopelessness of trying to please God in their own power. It's the cry of desperation that comes when we've tried so hard to be good, but find that we can't be good. Instead, we keep on doing things that we know are wrong. And it slowly dawns on us, we are under the power of sin. We're slaves to sin. What's the solution to our problem? The solution is to turn to Jesus Christ. To look up from our slavery and see him on the cross, paying the price to set us free. When you and I bank everything on Jesus, our rescuer, then we are rescued. We leave behind our old life and begin a new one. And it's this new life in Christ that Paul is going to describe in our passage this morning. We're going to begin looking at Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And the reason it's one of the greatest is because it's a genuinely life-transforming chapter. If you and I get to grips with the truths in this chapter, our lives will be different. And that's not because we'll move from being a non-Christian to being a Christian. This chapter is for Christians. It describes the Christian life. And it is capable of transforming our Christian lives. You'll find Romans 8 on page 1134 in the church Bibles or 1754 in the large print Bibles. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... 
they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is God's word. As Paul describes our new life in Christ here, he highlights three aspects of this life. He mentions the banner over our lives, the power in our lives, and the fight of our lives. Since chapter 7 was about trying to obey God without Christ, we might expect chapter 8 to begin with how we can obey in Christ. But that is not where Paul starts. He starts with the security that comes from being in Christ. Look at verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before talking about how we can live as Christians, Paul lays out our firm position as Christians, our security in Christ. We can live every day of our lives under a banner that says no condemnation. That's Paul's point in verses 1 to 3. What is condemnation? It's disapproval. In this case, divine disapproval. And at its strongest, condemnation means being under an eternal death sentence. God's wrath is like a heavy cloud that's ready to burst and that's hanging over your head. Now, I think most Christians understand that in Christ, we are delivered from that kind of condemnation. But the word no in verse 1 is an emphatic no. You can imagine it underlined in red in your Bible. Twice. Paul wants us to grasp that we're not just delivered from God's wrath, we're also delivered from his frown. Maybe you've had the experience of staying in someone else's house. Maybe a relative or a friend. For whatever reason, you're living under their roof for a while. But you soon begin to suspect they're not too happy that you're staying with them. Maybe they invited you to stay and maybe they gave you a big welcome. But as the days go by, it becomes increasingly obvious they're beginning to regret it. They resent you being there. You're in the way. Have you ever experienced that? It's very uncomfortable. It puts you on edge. You don't want to be in that kind of atmosphere. You find yourself staying in your room as much as possible. 
And you take every opportunity to get out of the house. You are officially welcome, but in reality, you know you're seen as a nuisance. I remember when I was about 11 or 12, I went to stay with a friend. At least we had been friends, and our parents were friends, but we didn't live close to one another, so we didn't see each other very much. I remember going to stay at his house for a while, maybe a week, and quickly realizing that he didn't seem over the moon to have me around. So I asked him about it, and he was very honest. He said, I don't really want you here. But my parents told me you were coming, and I just had to deal with it. Now, in his defense, I'm quite sure that I wasn't a model guest. At that time, I was obsessed with football. I only wanted to play football and talk about football, and he couldn't stand football. But I do remember it being a very tense week. Sometimes as Christians, we live with the suspicion that's how things are with us and God. We suspect that maybe he views us like the unwelcome visitor who has to be tolerated. We've come to Jesus, so God has to put up with us, but really we're a nuisance. We're cluttering up his kingdom, and we're irritating him no end. Not only is that an unpleasant feeling to have, not only does it kill our joy, it completely crushes our effectiveness for God. You and I are never going to serve God effectively if we think we are unwelcome visitors in his kingdom. When we have that mindset, sin becomes like getting out of the house. It feels like an escape. If we feel like the awkward child of the family, the one who doesn't really belong, then we're more likely to act that way. But if that's anything close to your perspective, verse 1 is here to change it. Verse 1 is here to change the whole atmosphere of your life. Look at the banner God has raised over your head. No condemnation. You belong. You're welcome. You don't have to hide in your room. God is pleased to hear from you. You are not an inconvenience to him. You can put your own name into verse 1. There is now no condemnation for... And if we grasp this... Wouldn't it change our whole approach to sin? Wouldn't that atmosphere of acceptance make sin a lot less attractive to us? Wouldn't we come out of our shell and truly live for God? The banner says no condemnation. But how did the banner get there? How can we be free from condemnation? Well, that's what Paul explains in verses 2 and 3. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul isn't talking here about the Old Testament law. He's saying you've been transferred from a life under the power of sin and death to a life where God's Holy Spirit is the controlling power. How did that transfer happen? Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Now we do get to God's Old Testament law. It called men and women to obey. But it was powerless to enable their obedience. Those men and women were slaves to sin. So the law stood over them, condemning them for their failure. We saw that last week. So what did God do? He sent his son Jesus in genuine human flesh. But not sinful human flesh. Paul gets that across by saying he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. To all appearances, Jesus the man was exactly like you and me. But there was one difference. He was not tainted at all by sin. And so he was qualified to be an offering for sin. Those animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, we were told again and again in the Old Testament, they had to be without blemish. That illustrated the truth that only a perfect sacrifice could substitute for imperfect people. The New Testament tells us Jesus came as the ultimate unblemished sacrificial lamb. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he absorbed all the condemnation that was due to you and me. If we belong to Jesus, God the Father has no condemnation left for us. It's all been poured out on Jesus. That's how that banner got raised above our heads. Our Savior stood in our place and like a sponge, he soaked up that condemnation until there wasn't a drop left. George Herbert wrote a poem called Love. Actually, he wrote several poems with that title. But in one of those poems, he pictures himself visiting love. And love turns out to be God. Love welcomes him in. But Herbert draws back. He knows his sinfulness. He knows he's not worthy to be a guest at love's home. He begins to explain about his guilt, the way he's wasted God's good gifts. But love says, know you not who bore the blame? Herbert thinks he understands, so he offers at that point to serve love. But love tells him, you must sit down and taste my meat. And Herbert tells us, 
So I did sit and eat. Finally, he understood. He was not a tolerated guest in God's presence. He was a welcome, honored guest. He had a seat at the table. And he had that seat at the table because love had paid the price to make him an honored guest. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are one of the honored guests. Your welcome in God's presence doesn't depend on what great company you are. It depends on the banner he has paid for and raised over your head. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, having told us that new life in Christ involves a new atmosphere of acceptance, now Paul turns to the subject we expected him to start with, our daily lives for God. We know that we're welcome with God, but what about living a life that then brings pleasure to God? We know that was a non-starter in our old life. So now that we're in Christ, has anything changed for us in that area? Paul's answer is that everything has changed. In verses 4 to 11, he describes the power in our lives. God, the Holy Spirit. As far as obeying God was concerned, our old life was like a car without petrol. Some of us had lives that looked like rusty bangers. We had problems that were obvious for everybody to see. Some of us looked like shiny Ferraris. We had no obvious problems on the outside. But it didn't really matter what we looked like because none of us had any petrol. None of us could make an inch of progress towards pleasing God. But Paul tells us that now, in our new life, God provides the fuel. In verse 4, Paul says, What God has done in Christ was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In the book of Romans, the word spirit occurs five times in the first seven chapters. It occurs eight times in chapters 9 to 16. And it occurs 21 times in chapter 8. Twelve of those are found here in our passage. Someone has said that the message of these verses is that Christians have been supernaturalized. I think that's entirely accurate. The Christian life is a supernatural life. Now, that doesn't mean we can bend spoons with our minds. It doesn't mean we can read other people's minds. It means we are given the power to do what spiritually dead people can never do. We can live a life that pleases God. 
In these verses, Paul contrasts those who live according to the flesh with those who live according to the Spirit. And it's really important to understand, in these verses, Paul is not calling Christians to be one instead of the other. He is describing what Christians are. We used to be men and women who lived according to the flesh. Now, in Christ, we live according to the Spirit. That's just a fact. Going back to the comparison with cars, our petrol tanks used to be empty. Now they're full. That's what God has done. In terms of obedience to God, we now have the fuel to get somewhere. But what does Paul mean when he says we no longer live according to the flesh? Well, clearly he's not talking about our bodies because we still have those. They didn't disappear when you and I became Christians. So what is Paul talking about? Well, think back to chapter 5. Paul told us in that chapter about two men and two worlds. The world of Adam and the world of Christ. He told us the world of Adam is a world where sin and death reign. The world of Christ is a world where grace and life reign. We are all born into Adam's world. And here, living according to the flesh is another way of saying living in Adam's world or Adam's kingdom. And living according to the Spirit equates to living in Christ's kingdom. We'll see in a moment the NIV uses the word realm. Adam's or realm of the flesh and Christ's realm. That's a way of getting across the idea that we are either in one realm or the other, but not both. So again, Paul is not saying, Christians, pick your kingdom. He's saying, Christians, let me tell you about the kingdom you live in. It's a kingdom where you have the power to do what God calls you to do. That power is the third member of the Trinity living in you. What does the Spirit do? He alters the whole direction of your life, starting with your outlook and your inclinations. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. Paul is saying that outside of Christ, the fundamental direction of our lives is pulling away from God. It's hostile to Him. But in Christ, our minds are governed by the Spirit. 
In fact, the Holy Spirit is so closely tied to Christ that Paul can call him the Spirit of Christ. Paul says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. The two can't be separated. And at the end of verse 9, he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So as Christians, do you and I need to grow in our reliance on the Spirit? Yes. Do we need to grow in our obedience to Christ through the Spirit? Yes. Paul will get to that. But here he's giving us the foundation for all that. There is new supernatural power in our lives. We have God the Holy Spirit living in us. And look what that power produces in us. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. If your idea of a supernatural person is the Incredible Hulk or Superman, then Christians do not look like supernatural people. Our bodies are mortal and weak. We can't leap tall buildings at a single bound. We are subject to death. To the best of my knowledge, Christians don't tend to live any longer than non-Christians do. We no longer belong in Adam's kingdom, but we still suffer the physical consequences of Adam's sin. Our energies are limited. We get tired and we get sick and we die. But we have new life in us. That new life enables us to please God with our lives today. And one day it will lead us through physical resurrection to eternal life. So when we experience the realities of living in a sinful, broken world, we should not be surprised. But we should remember the truth that overcomes our weakness. We have new life and power within us. One writer says this, Do not think, I have God's Spirit, but I also have problems. So what difference does the Spirit make? Instead, think, I have problems, but I also have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have hope. We have not grasped the truth about the Christian life until we've grasped that it's a supernatural life. As a Christian, you will never face a trial or responsibility without the supernatural resources you need for that trial or responsibility. When God saves us by his grace, 
He also equips and empowers us by his grace. And he expects us to use that equipment and power. Sometimes as Christians we miss that. Sometimes we get the idea that when we're tempted, the thing to do is to pray and ask God to stop us from sinning. And if he doesn't stop us, well, I suppose he let us down. Or if we have a responsibility that seems too heavy for us, Sometimes we think our only options are to pray for God to either take the burden away or to make it lighter. But Paul has no time for that kind of passive Christianity. Yes, we have to pray all the while and pray desperately, but not passively. Paul has told us about the power God has given us. Now he tells us to take action in reliance on God's power. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul has gone about things in this passage in a very careful order. First, he assured us about the banner over our lives. Then he described the power in our lives. And now he gets to the fight of our lives. Obedience. As you know, we have two boys. And I hope... Our two boys feel that our house is the most welcoming place in the world for them. I hope they know it's truly home for them. I hope they never doubt that they belong and that they're loved. But that doesn't mean they are above being challenged and corrected in our house. And it's the same for us in God's kingdom. In Christ, we truly belong. We are truly home. But the truth that there's no condemnation for us does not mean we're always right. It doesn't mean we're never going to be challenged to get our act together. That's what these final verses are here for. Paul says, you've got the security in Christ. You've got the power in Christ. Now go to war on sin. Start fighting to be an obedient Christian. If you roll over and give up on the battle against sin, you'll die. And that raises a very obvious question. How can Paul say this? Isn't he contradicting what he said earlier about no condemnation? The answer is no, he's not contradicting himself. Paul is telling us the sign of a genuine Christian is that he or she will go to war on sin. 
Genuine Christians fight to be obedient Christians. Do we always succeed? No. We know that. Sometimes we forget who we are in Christ. Sometimes we live like sin is still our master. And sometimes we just get lazy about sin. But if you and I are Christians, then the trajectory of our lives will be away from sin and towards obedience. So as we read these verses, the question to ask yourself is not, what was my life like yesterday? The question is, what has my life been like in the last six months? What has characterized my life generally? And how does that compare with my life six years ago? Is there any noticeable difference between now and then? Are there any signs of less obedience to my old master and more obedience to the spirit who dwells within me? Are there any signs that I'm a man or a woman fighting sin in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that bad temper of mine on the ropes? Is that greed looking a bit starved of attention in my life? Does that bitter tongue sound less sharp than it used to? Is that wandering eye a bit swollen and bruised? Are discontentment and self-pity running for cover in my life? Maybe you've never stopped to identify the areas where sin gets the better of you. But we need to do that. We need to ask God to show us. Then in the power he has given us, the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to put those sins to the sword. Putting to death the misdeeds of the body is a lifetime's work. Very often we think some sin is dead, only to find out it's just been playing dead. But the way to victory is to remember this. In every situation where we could sin, we do have the power not to sin. That's not an excuse to play around with sin and think we can turn away from it at the last moment. No, we have to avoid situations that will lead us towards sin. But the point is, as Christians, sin is never inevitable for us. The third member of the Trinity is with us. If we fight in his power, sin will lose the battle. We started by talking about a banner. And in the ancient world, when an army went out to war, they marched under a banner carried high above their heads. And when they fought, the banner continued to be held high. Wherever they were in the battlefield, they could look up 
and take courage from the name of the king or country that was on that banner. As Christians, you and I fight under a banner that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because that banner flies over our lives, we have the power of God's Spirit in our lives. That's why you and I will get up tomorrow and fight to obey. That's why this week you and I will take drastic measures to put sin to death. Because in Christ, we know we're accepted by God. We're brought near to God. We have new life in God. What we have in Christ inspires us to put to death everything that's opposed to what we have in Christ. So let's close with two songs that remind us, first of all, of this banner God has placed over our lives. And then that reminds us of the call to fight in his strength. We're going to sing completely done and then soldiers of Christ arise.